Welcome to Safer Roads by Protective Insurance. Expertise to help you protect your fleet. Hello, and welcome back to Safer Roads, presented by Protective Insurance. On this show, we sit down with experts from Protective to dive into the information they've gathered working as dedicated members of the transportation community over the last 100 years. I'm Rudy Sallow. I'm a lawyer in a large U.S. law firm where I advise on financing infrastructure and transportation systems throughout the United States. I'm also a Forbes.com transportation contributor, public speaker, law professor, and podcaster. And today, we continue our four-part series on medical financing. Joining me once again to discuss is Senior Vice President of Claims for Protective Insurance, Nathan Lundquist, and Executive Vice President of Claims for Protective Insurance, Jeremy Goldstein. If you missed the last episode, we highly suggest you go back and listen to it. We discuss how medical financing can lead to a nuclear verdict and how medical financing differs from litigation financing. On today's episode, we are continuing to take a closer look at medical financing as Nathan, Jeremy, and I explore Protective's unique history with this issue. We recap our previous discussions, touch on why those outside of transportation should care about medical financing, dive into the impact of advertisement on nuclear verdicts, and much, much more. Welcome, Nathan and Jeremy. In the first episode, you defined medical financing and nuclear verdicts for us. We also talked about how medical financing can lead to a nuclear verdict. In episode two, we talked about the first case that brought medical financing to the forefront at Protective. Is there anything else you wanted to recap for us? I think that in terms of a recap, it's just that medical financing continues to be a major issue that we keep discovering more and more of. So just peeling back the onion and, and seeing how prevalent it is. And it really is, it's not the only factor, but it's a pretty big factor in terms of contributing to the, the increased cost of personal injury claims. Nathan, did you want to add anything further? No, I think that that captures sort of the, the ongoing interest at, at Protective and probably a reasonable statement as to why more folks should be interested in it. Protective is going through the time and effort to talk about medical financing, producing this podcast, speaking at conferences, and doing much, much more. Why does it matter? I guess it depends on, on your worldview, right? But for protective and for the insurance industry specifically, I think actually now's a really good time to be having this discussion, right? When we're seeing almost unprecedented inflation and you're seeing rising costs across multiple sectors of, of the economy. And if we want to sort of take it in steps, right? You have costs of claims rise, translation will be rising insurance costs. As the cost to insure vehicles rise, you will see an increase in the cost of the goods being transported by those vehicles, which means it's going to be more expensive for everybody every day. And so sort of beyond that, generally speaking, it, and this probably isn't the best answer for, for the audience, right? But there's a, a sort of a general sentiment that it's just not right. When you have doctors and uh, medical providers that are billing their services out at a rate, their charge master rate, which was initially designed as a negotiation tool with insurance companies to ensure appropriate payment, right? Medical insurance companies. So a $1,000 charge master rate would translate to a $250 payment by the insurance company. And then as those percentages were being tweaked, charge master would go up in an effort to ensure they were still receiving adequate compensation. So Chargemaster 
has very little tie to reality and very little tie to the cost of the services being provided. It was more of a, a negotiation tool with medical insurance companies. So with medical financing and lien-based medical treatment, folks are opting out of using their private insurance and these charge master rates are still being charged. And we are confident that those negotiations happen on the back end to reduce that lien amount down, but the amount that's presented is the full charge master amount. So you're seeing folks present, I mean, you could call them phantom damages if you want, or damages that for which no one is actually expecting payment, except they expect the insurance company to pay it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And you've touched upon this, but kind of a, a kind of a corollary question here. Why should those outside of the area of transportation care about medical financing? Well, I, I think that, and Nathan, jump in if you want to. I mean, First off, just quickly, I'll address our customers, the transportation companies themselves. Why, why do they care about medical finance? Because I think it's an issue of transparency to some degree. Everybody keeps seeing the cost of injury claims going up and up and up, and it's just not enough to say, sorry, guys, the cost of injury claims is going up and up and up. I think we owe our customers and the rest of the industry an explanation and certainly exploration as to, to what's going on. And of course, that translates right into cost of claims going up, the cost of your premiums, like Nathan said, going up, right? And, and that, that, that can be a big deal. And then, like Nathan said, just shedding light on questionable practices as well. Say what you want, but a lot of the back and forth between insurance companies and the plaintiff's bar is keeping each other honest and making sure that, that abuses don't happen. And I think exploration into uh, medical finance is certainly fair and does that. For people outside of the industry, it becomes pretty apparent that if a trucking company, a transportation company's number one or number two expense is the cost of insurance, and that's going up and up and up, the cost of getting your package is going to go up. And the cost of getting goods to the grocery store is, is going up. So I'm not the economist that can quantify all of that, but it certainly makes uh, pretty good sense to me in the age of 50 and $100 million verdicts that things are going to cost more to get from one place to the other. Yeah, with, with the whole with our whole nation so focused on inflation, you know, the June report just came out, everyone expecting more Fed rate hikes. It's crucially important that we focus on these areas that not everyone is focusing on as, as to well, why are things rising? Where is inflation coming from? And this obviously explains it. One of those reasons. Protective. Yeah, it doesn't explain all of it, right? No, 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 no. One of those areas. It's fine. I, you know, I just released a, a Forbes.com article on inflation and gas and, and why our transportation projects are becoming more and more expensive and, and its impact. I mean, it's a crazy web inflation. It's just it's great to hear. Oh, medical financing has a yes, it has an impact on it, and so that's that's why you know your customers should care. People outside of the transportation industry should care is because it affects everyone's life in one way or another. Protective insurers, companies all over the country. So do you see this happening in every state? It certainly varies by state. You can sort of throw it into maybe three general types of states. The types of states that have collateral source rules, which prevent us from challenging the amounts being billed. So if they, if they bill at charge master rate $100,000, and we know the reasonable and customary cost, or worse, the amount actually paid already for that service was 25000 
there are some states we can't get that in. So the jury will only ever hear and see the build amount of $100,000. There are other states where they'll show the build amount of 100 and we get to challenge that by showing the reasonable and customary amount. And so, and then there's obviously the state where we can show what's been paid. And so you can see impacts and the prevalence in a lot of ways is tied to how much transparency there is around the charges and, and the translation of charges to the reasonable and customary amounts. You know, it's incredibly prevalent in Georgia, Texas. We see a lot of it, Louisiana, Florida, basically all across the Southeast, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, New York, New Jersey, Ohio. <laughs> um, it, it, it's pretty prevalent, but the sort of the scope of it varies and, and the practices vary by state. I'd say the other thing that's pretty interesting about it is that we know that it's prevalent in, in Georgia, but one of the reasons we know it's prevalent in Georgia is that Nathan and some local council, you know, talented local council have been able to uncover more and more of what's happening in Georgia. I think that it wasn't too long ago where defense council had mentioned after one of Nathan's presentations, well, you know, well, that's that's good information, but that doesn't happen in our state. Well, it turns out that after doing some digging and doing the right discovery requests and that kind of stuff, that it is there. So I think that if the one, if there's a couple of things we've learned over the past couple of years is that it's not that easy to find out what's going on in medical financing. It takes a real effort and that it's probably in some places more than others, but you're probably going to see it pretty much everywhere if you dig deep enough. So I think one of the things we probably should just be cognizant of is as inflation goes up and things get sort of tighter for your average American, they are going to be more incentivized to seek outside funding for medical treatment or not to switch gears, but to fund their litigation through litigation loans, right? So sort of a tangential arm of this. And so as it gets tighter, we should expect to see more of it. It's a problem that's going to grow, not shrink, at least in the foreseeable future. Yeah. And I mean, and you're not just talking about litigation loans per se. You're also thinking about litigation funding and finance and all. I mean, that, that's growing and, and that this is going to have an impact on that as well as as will in inflation. Going back to like, you know, the various states and you're talking about well, in Georgia, we're able to uncover. Can you talk just a little bit about the other variations that you see from state to state that impact the results of a case? Is it that, you know, one state's got better transparency laws? Is it that there's something with the plaintiff's bar. What, what are some of those variations that, that leads to these impacts being different? Part of it is education. The lawyers in Georgia have done a really strong and solid job of educating the bench as to what they're seeing and, and the tactics and how they're able to discover improper communications or improper, my view, improper direction of care by lawyers, but in states where we haven't had that as much success or it's more county by county, if you will, a lot depends on the, the judge you draw and what you're able to get. So are you able to get funding contracts? Some states, yes. Other states, clearly no. The court hasn't been willing to, to sort of make that leap yet. I, I was just curious, are there just, do some states have better 
laws on the books that require transparency and then you're it's able to become more obvious that way or, or that's not necessarily the case there are states that are requiring whether through sort of standing orders with court or through legislation transparency around litigation funding the federal legislature has been trying to push through lit funding transparency for years now with very little traction but some states are getting more traction around that and have implemented some disclosures. Now, most of that's tied to multi-district litigation or class actions, right? And the plaintiff's lawyers receiving funding to cover the cost of relatively expensive litigation. That's the disclosure that's required. Those states still do not require disclosure of litigation funding on personal injury cases for the most part. So um, there's just not a lot of transparency around who's actually putting their hands in the pockets, if you will, or putting their hand into the, into the pot to raise the cost of overall claims. And to be fair, the cost of the actual litigation. One of the pieces that's been significant for protective is the amount of additional expense that's been taken on to try to, to uncover some of this activity, because it does take additional discovery. You can and do see a lot of motions to quash subpoenas to finance companies or outside providers for information that they deem irrelevant. So it sort of makes already protracted litigation a little more protracted, which necessarily raises the cost as well. I think the benefit, right? I think, unfortunately, so Protective isn't the biggest insurance company in the world, but we have taken on sort of, of this task to some degree, fighting over these things, and, and you have to fight them it's not like a national court that you're fighting in. It's every jurisdiction that you have to sort of educate the bar, uh, not only the bar, but the bench as well. Hopefully, and I think probably in places like Georgia, in the larger counties there, that we're getting that message through and defense counsel is getting that message through better and better so that there may be a little bit more disclosure, or at least we know where we're going or what the answer is going to be. But flashback four years ago, if we asked a question about medical financing, the first thing off of either the judges or the uh, plaintiff's attorney's lips would be is, uh, that's got to be collateral source. Let's not worry about that, which didn't really make any sense. But powering through that and presenting arguments and, and briefing can be a hassle. Hopefully, in, in some places, we've made a little bit of gains. And I think that with Nathan's presentations and lectures and various in industry events, we're no longer the only ones that are considering this. I think that it's it's kind of catching on, at least from some conversations that I've had. And, and Nathan, you're closer to it than I am. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully this podcast will help as well. Shifting over to Indiana, where your company is located, there are a lot of lawyers promoting their expertise in handling accident claims. There may be some in our audience who don't know that lawyers weren't allowed to advertise in the traditional sense for decades, but that changed in 1977. In your opinion, how does this type of advertising impact both medical financing and nuclear verdicts? It's a good question. Indiana is still really restrictive on lawyer advertisements, much more so than Florida, Texas, Louisiana. And there's certain caliber of plaintiff's lawyer that doesn't advertise. Think like the Leesermans of the world or the Panishes of the world. They're also not the folks that need or utilize litigation funding or medical financing. And then you have a group of lawyers that are the advertising lawyers that 
you referenced, right? You see them all up and down the interstates every five minutes during prime TV viewing hours. And there is a correlation between, at least based on what we've seen, the advertising group and the use of funding. So, you know, and it's not completely separate, obviously, right? It's not, well, this funding just came up. I've never really tied it to sort of increased advertising. I tied it more to the breakdown of mortgage-backed securities and the need to to plant money somewhere, but that's just been a theory. But with respect to social inflation, maybe more than nuclear verdicts, certainly advertising is setting expectations in the minds of society in general that, you know, you don't want the tiny check, you want the big check. And naturally, you want to hire the lawyers whose name is Demand the Limits, not Lundquist and Goldstein. One sounds more more aggressive. So surely there's a connection there. But I think it's tied more to general inflation because, again, nuclear verdicts, I would connect most of the the most prevalent verdicts in terms of size that sort of circulate, you know, the 100, 200, 400 million dollar verdicts aren't necessarily connected to the advertising firms. But those big checks, not tiny checks, certainly are. I think that the, the changing in advertising rules and the popping up of the billboards and, and advertising on television and radio and that kind of stuff did change the game. Sort of almost normalized an approach to personal injury law that wasn't there before and really kind of opened a lot of people's eyes to ah, this is a business, you know, and, and there've always been plaintiff's lawyers. There've always been good ones. There's always, there've always been maybe ones that, that have acted inappropriately sometimes. But I think that, that it kind of created a boom and it also opened up opportunities for all kinds of different industries to come in that, okay, this, this matters now. And especially now that if you drive down an interstate, you don't see, have you been hurt in an accident? It's, have you been hit by a truck? You know, it's pretty specific. And the plaintiff's attorneys know that they're not doing that because they hate trucks. They know that because trucks have big policies, typically, and that that's an opportunity. Well, then other industries like medical finance, like physical therapy, like all kinds of things. We're not denying that people are getting hurt out of this, but it opens up and expands business opportunities in a way that I don't think really happened pre-advertisement. Now, I wasn't practicing in 1977 either, so I, a lot of that is is theory, I suppose. Yeah, that was the year I was born. But I, just from my own experience, just talking to lawyers that were practicing before 1977, like my father-in-law, he often talks about the shift of when advertising rules, um, you know, weekend and lawyers were starting to advertise of what it was like before and what it was like after. So shifting focus a little bit um, back to transportation, which is a, a huge huge impactful industry in this country. There have to be others in the business who understand this issue and are working with you to make change. Who are those parties and what what are they doing to assist you guys? A lot of sort of trade industries have their judicial reform, their tort reform committees, of which this is a a solid focus, but it's just a piece, right? I would say it would actually be naive to have this be the only focus because eliminating this isn't going to solve the overarching problem. It could help. And so this is a piece of that. And so we've partnered with a few organizations. I know there are other insurance carriers out there that are looking at it now. 
And certainly some of our larger self-insured clients take it very seriously and are incredibly open to exploring the benefits of, of sort of exposing this practice. And I think that one thing that the inflation we've seen in the personal, personal injury claims has done is that, you know, Nathan's right, the ATA will have a pretty focused approach to tort reform or law, lawsuit abuse. And Jerry, don't mean to interrupt, but the ATA, can you just tell us what that stands for? Oh, sorry. American Trucking Associations. And that's their insurance task force that you're referring to? Yeah, they have an insurance task force and they have something, subcommittees within that task force. And it's very professional organization. You know, they have a lobbying arm, not just for insurance, but for all kinds of issues in the industry. But that's the national organization. There's local state trucking associations as well in every state. There's defense bar groups that, that are there. There are lots of them. But I think one thing that these folks in the industry and, and different groups are doing a little bit better than they have in the past is working together. So I know that the national ATA is working with the state and local organizations to sort of get legislation passed or find out what the issues are and also working with the defense bar, whether it's DRI or TIDA or whoever it, it may be, because the coordination is really important. If everybody's got kind of a little chest of money that they use to sort of influence and, and try to get things uh, moving along and studying and, and that kind of thing, that's fine. But if you can combine efforts there, and this is what's working in Georgia, this is what's working in Tennessee, so let's coordinate on some of those issues. I think they're doing a really good job. And I do think that our industry fell behind the plaintiff's bar in doing that. The plaintiff's bar is very good about educating each other as to what works and what doesn't in injury actions. They're very open about it. And they almost have a philosophy of if it's good for one, it's sort of good for all, right? And they educate each other as to the best way to, to try a case and, and what, what sticks with the jury. I think that if the defense bar and the industry and the various players kind of get together and coordinate a little bit more, which we're seeing more and more of, it will only be a good thing. And that's not specific to medical finance. Like Nathan said, it's all of those parts. I mean, you see it from anything from seatbelt laws to medical finance to statute of limitations that, that are sort of all on the table. And it's about coordinating what is the best approach. That's going to do it for part three of our series on medical financing. Thanks again to Nathan and Jeremy for joining us and discussing why medical financing means so much to Protective and talking about the impact of advertisement on nuclear verdicts as well as medical financing. If you haven't subscribed, take some time to do so now so you don't miss part four of this series. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and rate the show. I'm Rudy Sallow, and this has been Safer Roads by Protective Insurance.